Welcome to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneurs Podcast. My name is Fergal Byrne. Every week, I talk to inspiring social entrepreneurs and changemakers dedicated to building a better world. Here, they tell their stories, the highs and the lows, and share what they have learned to help other social entrepreneurs and changemakers on their journeys. I'm very pleased today to introduce Ron Cordes to the podcast. Ron is a veteran of more than 30 years in the investment industry. In 2006, together with his wife Marty, Ron set up the Cordes Foundation, a family foundation focused on social entrepreneurship, impact investing and creating economic opportunities for women and one of the first foundations to commit itself to aligning 100% of assets to mission. Ron speaks and writes extensively in the field of impact investing. He chairs the Executive Committee for Impact Assets, an initiative to catalyze capital for impact investments formed in partnership with the Calvert Foundation. Ron is also co-chair of the Opportunity Collaboration, a global poverty business retreat. PopTech has been catalyzing social impact for two decades via its renowned fellows program, incubated initiatives, thought-provoking salons and conferences. The PopTech 2017 conference takes place October 19th to 21st. You can book tickets now and find out more information at poptech.org. So thank you very much, Ron, for taking the time to speak to me today. My pleasure. Great. So um, I thought it would be interesting to get a little bit of a sense of your background, Ron, and how you got started and, you know, where your interest in philanthropy began. Yeah, maybe I'll just start. My, my traditional business career was kind of the, the, the catapult into philanthropy. I spent uh, about three decades in investment management here in the U.S., built with two partners of an investment management firm. In 2006, we had an opportunity to sell the firm to a global insurance company. And my wife and I did something that we'd always wanted to do. We kind of decided to organize and kind of take the next step in our philanthropy and create a family foundation. And so if you had asked me 10 years ago what I'd be doing today, my answer would have been a traditional philanthropist with a grant's budget and providing capital to organizations that were moving the needle in areas that we care about. And we do all that today. But in addition to what we do in traditional philanthropy, we've also become quite active in investing what I call the other 95% of our portfolio. Given that most U.S. foundations give away about 5% a year, we've tried to engage the entire 100% by catalyzing our philanthropy with impact investments. Right, right. Fascinating. Um, big trend at the moment. It's been growing, I guess, for uh, some time. And I know you've been a pioneer in this and 100% for mission approach. I've spoken to people at the Heron Foundation and others that are heading in this direction uh, or on this journey as well. Can you talk about this? Why does this matter, Ron? Well, I think that as we really began to dive into the foundation after we created it in 2006, we realized very quickly that our mission orientation was to look at solving or attempting to solve really big problems, global poverty, the role of women and girls in the world, economic inequality, inequality financial inclusion. And it struck us as um, very counterproductive that the way in which the foundation world was solving these problems was by only using a small portion of the assets that they had 
through philanthropic giving. And so we began to meet these social entrepreneurs who were building business models that we thought had great resonance and great possibility to solve problems at large scale, but who needed capital beyond traditional philanthropy. So in 2007, we went to our board and our advisors and suggested that we as a foundation, in addition to what we were doing on grants and philanthropy, should be allocating at the time, we began with a small portion, 20% of our investment portfolio towards solving those same issues as well. And as, as you said, I, I guess I was a pioneer. The pioneers always tend to take the early arrows. Um, we were, we were a, a, you know, this was at a time when very few foundations we're doing this. The term impact investing hadn't even really been coined yet, so it was very much of an emerging field. And so it took us, we had to go through about three sets of advisors and legal counsel before we were able to build a team that respected what we were trying to do and were looking to get to yes and not no. And uh, that enabled us actually to get that 20% of our portfolio kind of fully invested over about a year, year and a half uh, by the fall of 2008. Right. That's very interesting. And, and I guess highlights what are potentially some of the uh, big challenge is, is, is a cultural question as well. The difference between thinking about grants and thinking about investments. Can you talk a little bit about that? You mentioned you've uh, refreshed your advisory group. Um, I'd be interested to get your perspective. Yeah, so I, I think there's also over the last decade been kind of a sea change in the way in which a lot of individuals and foundations are looking at grants, right? A lot more focus on metrics, a lot more focus on outcomes than just inputs. It's not as much how many people you're serving or how many dollars you're putting out, but what the real outcomes and impacts are. So we found as we began to get into the impact investing world, we were asking those questions and having to have, in some cases, difficult conversations with entrepreneurs about the viability of business models. And so uh, I would say that, that the advice that I give now, we speak a lot with other family foundations and philanthropists, is the biggest danger one can have in transitioning from a grants-only portfolio to one that involves both grants and investments is the danger of kind of leading with your heart on the investment side and focusing on the potential mission of the investment at perhaps the exclusion of the financial viability. So, uh, you know, when we, we, we've had a number of cases where we've had to say to an entrepreneur, what you're doing looks like it's very interesting and has great potential, but isn't yet ready for investment dollars. You should actually, we've participated in some cases, you should be raising some early philanthropic capital to kind of prove the case and do your R&D and be able to develop a viable enough business model that it's actually possible to attract investment capital. And, uh, you know, we, early on, we actually had a couple of entrepreneurs who said to us, you know, this idea is so good and the, the mission and the potential impact of society is so strong that even if you lost your money, it still would have made a great philanthropic grant. And while I totally appreciate where they were coming from in that, what I had to respond back is to say, well, if we really thought that way too much, we would find ourselves 
as the stewards of a shrinking foundation endowment that would not have been acting as a good fiduciary as an investor. So we've really had to kind of put on those two different hats. Is it philanthropy or is it an investment? And if it is indeed an impact investment, then we put a great deal of rigor around what is its viability as an investment in the business model. Right. That's very interesting. And I'd like to touch on that, come back to that uh, a little later, that question about different kinds of finance for different kinds of projects. Can you give me an indication of the scale of your activity? Yeah, we've got today, we've got about, in, in the foundation, we've got about 10 million U.S. invested uh, in impact. Right, right. Uh, and the that, foundation is, yeah, we, we've got a family office and some other pockets that we're also investing. The foundation is the one uh, the one of our entities where we've made the decision to to look to invest 100% of that corpus for impact. Right, right. And can you talk about the, the role of family foundations maybe a little bit more generally in, in, in supporting social innovation? I don't know whether you have any thoughts on, on their role and how well they're responding to uh, the, the, the possibilities here. I actually think well, when I first got into this in 2000, I was, uh, you know, I was taken by the opportunity. There was at the time roughly about 600 million total in the U.S. in foundation assets, both family foundations and kind of more, you know, the institutional longer running, the Rockefellers, Fords, MacArthur's, etc. And I had looked at that and said, boy, now that number is up closer to 800 billion. I looked at it and said. Um, boy, that's low-hanging fruit, right? These dollars were all allocated at one time or another toward a mission. And so why wouldn't these foundations all be interested in going beyond their grants budget? And we've done an enormous amount of work uh, through organizations I'm part of individually. We as a family convene pretty regularly meetings of other foundations, high net worth individuals, families, and you know, I've become convinced that the, the low-hanging fruit is really not the foundation world, which is in the U.S. moved far less than 1% of those total assets to impact. We're really focused now on first-generation wealth creator families because we found that they are more nimble, kind of more opportunistic, more entrepreneurial, and less kind of bureaucracy-laden than some of the larger foundations who are doing wonderful, well-meaning work, but where the foundation, you know, the foundation creator has long since passed away, and you know, the, the board and staff are much just in a much more bureaucratic state that doesn't necessarily allow them to take the type of innovative risks that one would like to see them take. And I, I actually would very much commend my friend Clara. Miller and the group that she has at Heron, because Heron Foundation has absolutely bucked that trend. And as a long established foundation under Clara's leadership, they've made the decision to go to 100% and have done it in a hugely authentic and impactful way. And have done it in a way that in the same way that we do as a bit of a larger foundation than us, have tried to inspire their peers to go that same direction. Great. Yes, absolutely. I'm speaking to Clara. I, I did speak to her for the podcast and I'm, I'm talking to her again, actually, tomorrow. I also spoke with uh, Emmett Carson from the Silicon Valley Community Foundation, who talked about some very interesting trends in Silicon Valley and this idea, I guess, that um, tech 
technology entrepreneurs are keen to be more involved and have interesting ideas about how to do that? Absolutely. I, I actually don't know Emmett personally, but respect what he's done at Silicon Valley Foundation. And I think he's in the really in the epicenter of, uh, of a growing market. And if you kind of look at, uh, we do a lot of co-investing with the Omidyar network. So Pierre and Pam Omidyar out of eBay. Uh, we're looking with great interest at what Mark Zuckerberg and Pris Priscilla Chan are doing in the Chan Zuckerberg initiative, because they, like Omidyar, have said, we're not just going to be a traditional foundation or philanthropy. We're going to kind of open ourselves up to have a lot of arrows in our quiver. And we're certainly finding, you know, that the tech entrepreneurs have, you know, they've developed their wealth at a younger age. Uh, they tend to be more engaged in the process. It's not about kind of writing checks and giving money away. Um, it's really about, you know, being engaged in that process, often through innovative technologies of finding solutions to big problems. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, can we talk a little bit about social entrepreneurs? Clearly something you care about. What do you think is the unique contribution that social entrepreneurs bringing to sol solve social problems? Well, I think that, you know, in the same way that a traditional entrepreneur kind of tends to look at problems and opportunities maybe in a different way than other people, uh, I love the fact that social entrepreneurs have taken the same tact with a mission orientation. So um, we, we, you know, I didn't know in, in 2006 when we created our foundation, I honestly, I, I guess I would say I knew the term social entrepreneur existed, right? Putting those two words together, I could kind of generically figure out what that meant, but I didn't know any and I didn't really understand the context of it. So. For me, there's a, a seminal book uh, written by uh, someone who's now become a good friend, David Bornstein, who now writes for the New York Times as well, called How to Change the World, written in 04. And it was about a group at the time of the, the first Ashoka fellow social entrepreneurs. So I read that book, began to meet a lot of them. We endowed a university program in social entrepreneurship in California, where we lived at the time. We brought a bunch of social entrepreneurs in as speakers and practitioners and residents. And I just really, you know, what, what, I, what I found was that these were, at their core, brilliant entrepreneurs that I believe would have succeeded at any type of conventional venture, but made the decision to apply that unique entrepreneurial skill that they had to trying to solve a big problem that was critically important to them. And so, you know, I love the idea you know, the, the, the old Einstein quote that the problems of tomorrow will not be solved with the, the skill sets that, or the, the solution sets we're using today, that if we're really going to attack the big problems of the world, we've got to step back and think about new and interesting ways of solving them. And we're in the midst of this incredible technology revolution that's just giving so many more tools to entrepreneurs to be able to do that. Um, you know, mobile money is a big one for us. We've done a lot of work in financial inclusion and microfinance. And, you know, we're finding applications for financial technology across the world in rural villages that 15 years ago were completely disconnected from the rest of the world, right? No water, no sanitation, no electricity, no phones, nothing. 
And today, you know, 80% or more of those populations have cell phone and internet connectivity and brilliant social entrepreneurs, whether it be the One Acre Fund in agriculture or others, are coming up with ways for them to use that connectivity to their benefit. Absolutely. My first podcast interview was with Zuna and uh, followed their growth as well. Uh, very interesting work they're doing. Now, what do you think are a few of the biggest changes, Ron, in the field over the last decade? Well, I think that I, I think the field is beginning to become professionalized. And so by field, I, I guess maybe I'll conflate. You've got social entrepreneurship and impact investing, which I think are very close cousins. And I think in both of those fields, a couple of things have happened. One, there has become a lot more focus on impact measurement. So earlier on, I think that it was um, whether you were an investor and a social entrepreneur or providing philanthropic capital to a nonprofit social enterprise, it was kind of, it was more acceptable to just accept anecdotal results. And I think that now that there's been a proliferation of these programs, initiatives, companies, more opportunities and more investors, um, folks are really looking at how do you quantify, right? And if I'm looking at three different ways to solve a particular problem, and all three seem to have brilliant leadership, and all three have got the great anecdotal stories of what they're doing, how do I determine which one is the most effective? And so uh, we love the work that whether it's the GIN, the B Corp, and the U.S. and others are doing to kind of build out impact metrics. We also recognize as a foundation that's been applying a lot of that, it's really hard. You know, the financial metrics are very straightforward. It's math and the ways in which you analyze one company against another. There's a, you know, decades of history behind how that's done. So impact measurement is a new field and it's a messy field, but we applaud the fact that there's some really good effort going in to, to, to build that. And then secondly, we think that there's just a, there's ecosystems that are being built today that didn't exist 10 years ago. Uh, in social entrepreneurship, it's all about accelerator programs that are allowing for collective learning, kind of taking the Silicon Valley Y Combinator approach and applying that throughout the world. And we support and partner with a number of them. And then in the impact investing world, there's a lot of educational programs of which we support and have started a couple at universities around kind of taking either the next generation, the, the, the undergraduate or graduate college student, and equipping them with impact investing tools, or, and it's, this is becoming more pronounced, bringing back mid-career professionals from the investing world who already have the traditional investment tools, but equipping them with the tools to kind of merge that traditional investment skill and become impact investors. Absolutely. It's a, a lot happening. And again, a lot happening coming out of Silicon Valley, not just uh, from, from the West Coast, but there does seem to be quite a, a lot of innovation happening there. Um, can you talk a bit about your investments in women and girls, Ron, um, how you develop those and maybe talk about one or two of your projects there? Sure. So when, when my wife, Marty, and I created the foundation, a lot of the 
earlier philanthropic work that we had done individually had been around the empowerment of women and girls. So we knew that we wanted that to be a core theme. And not too long after we created the foundation, uh, the kind of seminal book, Nick Kristoff and Cheryl Wudon, Half the Sky, came out and kind of reiterated this idea that, that you know, empowering women and girls is just a critical element of finding ways to, to alleviate poverty, economic development. So our first investments were combining economic empowerment, financial inclusion. They were in microfinance. Uh, we invested in a number of microfinance institutions and funds, uh, including a, the first fund from Women's World Banking, um, a number of other organizations focused on providing capital to women entrepreneurs. Uh, and we continue to do that in a pretty material way, but we've now also, our daughter joined the foundation in 2014. She'd come out of the fashion industry and she began to kind of open our eyes to this interplay between fashion and economic empowerment of women and the idea that artists and employment in the developing world is second only to agriculture as an employer of women. And so we began to find ways to support artists and networks and make investments in companies that support artisans. So we were just over this spring, our entire foundation team for a month in Africa on the ground looking at a number of investments that we made. Uh, two, for example, in East Africa. Uh, one is a company called All Across Africa, which brings together collectives, started with basket weavers, um, and now is, is expanded beyond baskets into all types of home products, but brings collectives of artisans together and then creates a global network for those artisans. In the U.S., they actually sell primarily through Costco stores. So it's a multi-million dollar a year business and gives these artisans an opportunity to earn far more for producing these items than they would have if they tried to just sell them locally. Uh, and then similarly, in Kenya, in the Kibera slum in Nairobi, uh, we funded a business that's Kenyan-based but now has a global footprint called Soko. And Soko is uh, a designer jewelry company sold both wholesale and retail in the U.S. through stores like Nordstrom and others, where all of the, the material, all of the jewelry is actually uh, produced by small artisans, most of whom reside in Kibera, which is one of the largest slums in the world, about a million people in the center of Nairobi. And again, they're creating an item that in order to deliver the value, Soko is creating that connection for them with a global marketplace that they otherwise would have had no way to connect with. And in Soko's case, they've actually built a proprietary technology. It's almost like an Uber technology where when they get an order for a thousand pieces of jewelry from Nordstrom, they have smartphone technology because again, that world is even at the bottom of the economic pyramid in Africa is now so well connected that they send out the order and the artisans will pick up the number that they can actually produce and deliver by the delivery date. So 20 here, 50 there, 100 there. And Soko then aggregates it all together and delivers off in one total the 1,000 items to Nordstrom. Right, right. Very inspiring projects there, Ron. 
Can you tell me a little bit about the fellowship program and opportunity collaboration? Yeah, so about eight years ago, we got involved in this event that was originally called an unconference in Mexico. And the idea started by a, a great friend and business partner now of ours, Jonathan Lewis, was he became frustrated with all of the conferences that are on this kind of social enterprise and impact investing circuit. And he joked that it was just a, you know, he, he could no longer sit day after day in darkened rooms looking in, at sages on stages, he called them, folks whom he could go watch their TED Talks when what he really wanted to do was engage with all the other people who were there and cared about the same things that he did. So he created, and we helped and we were involved early on in, in helping this conference called the Opportunity Collaboration, which is uh, held each year, each fall down in Mexico. Uh, we rent an entire uh, hotel property, about 400 rooms. We turn it into a college campus. It's an invitation-only group of philanthropists, impact investors, foundations, social entrepreneurs, policymakers, um, advocates, activists, and um, it's really become it's a five-day event, no plenaries, no PowerPoints, no speeches. It's all professionally facilitated conversations. And after the first year, we realized that there were some voices that should be in the room that weren't, and those were voices of folks, particularly from the developing world, who just didn't have the connections or the financial capacity to participate in an event like this. So uh, we created this concept of Cortis Fellows, where now each year we sponsor and scholarship 60 social entrepreneurs from both the developed and developing worlds, although about 75% of them come from the developing worlds. And in many cases, these are young social entrepreneurs who some cases have never been on a plane out of their home country. We've got a group of people that work with them on passports and visas, et cetera. And um, the idea is that in the same respect as we're giving the artisans at all across Africa and SOCO an opportunity to put their products on a global stage, we're giving these social entrepreneurs an opportunity to participate in a global stage where they make invaluable connections with funders, advocates, board members, advisors, investors that they never would have made otherwise. And what we actually find is that the other 340 more traditional delegates who attend from across a variety of spaces really appreciate and value the opportunity to meet the 60 fellows who are kind of the brilliant diamonds in the rough that they might never have come across in their traditional travels. So our fellowship program, we now partner with Skoll and Ashoka and Echoing Green and Village Capital and then Reasonable Institute. So uh, success for us is when our fellows come to the event, they find an opportunity to move their project forward in whatever way they need, whether it's funding, advice, mentorship, and then they have an opportunity to apply for, and in many cases win, a larger fellowship. So many of them have gone on to become Echoing Green Fellows, and a handful now, a growing handful, have gone on to kind of the ultimate pinnacle in social entrepreneurship to become an Ashoka Fellow. Yes, it's fascinating. Looking through some of the names, Chris Atageka, 
who I'm very fond of, a uh, very inspiring guy and former line. I, I'm speaking to um, Alicia's um, later in the week. It's uh, great to hear that these uh, inspiring folks are right at the heart of this because, as you say, they are creating the, the change and they are so inspiring. Now, but it's, it's an honor to, uh, it's just an honor to meet them. And, uh, you know, we, we keep in close touch. Our, our foundation team keeps in close touch with them on social media. And, uh, you know, we, we can, we just, we, we revel in their wins down the road as, uh, you know, as, as milestones happen in their organizations, even those that were fellows four, five, six, seven years ago, will often write us or ring us and tell us that something that happened at the opportunity collaboration ended up being a catalyst for some really instrumental thing in their organization. Brilliant, brilliant. Now there's a lot of money coming into the sector. It's a, become a buzzword, the economists' conferences, impact investment conferences, a lot of talk. Now, um, how much of this do you think is, is what you might call concessionary finance, looking for willing to accept, you know, below market rates of returns and does that matter? Great questions, both. Um, so I, I guess I, let me start by answering the first one. I think it does matter in that um, in our so in our foundation and both in the way we apply our dollars and the way we think about them, there is a place for concessionary capital, and oftentimes that place is in the U.S. in a PRI budget, um, so, you know, program-related investment where someone would actually, as a foundation, take part of what otherwise would have been allocated in their 5% grants budget and make a concessionary impact investment that they believe is going to be more impactful than just granting. So there's definitely a place for it, but my concern is that I think that the world at large, outside of our impact investing community, still hasn't gotten their arms around. They, they tend to conflate at market returns and concessionary returns. So the danger is that a lot of the, the traditional investing world still looks at impact investing and says, well, these are just, you know, uh, Bono's actual quote about the TPG thing, you know, the, uh, impact investing is a lot of good people doing bad deals. Right. So um, my, my, my response was, I love Bono. He's, uh, you know, love his songs. He's a great activist, but I wouldn't necessarily consider him the next Warren Buffett from an investment perspective. Um, <laughs> but that's that's a danger. So I think what we found in the world that we work in, maybe it's because I came off Wall Street. So I still have a ton of connections in that area. Most folks that we engage with are looking for kind of risk-adjusted market returns in their impact investing portfolio. And that's hard to put a, a, a number around because it depends on where you're at on the risk spectrum. Is it debt? Is it equity, early stage, later stage? But you know, a lot of the work that we do, for example, is around debt and working capital. And whether it's in microfinance, whether it's in trade finance, uh, we've become convinced with our own capital and lots of other capital that we've put next to it that it's possible to earn a reasonable risk-adjusted rate of return, typically mid to high single digits in debt, 
while still being very focused on the impact metrics and the mission that you're trying to accomplish. And uh, so we're, we try to spread that word because we are concerned that, um, you know, if impact investing just simply becomes known as a way to make concessionary investments, it will never end up expanding and having the type of, of you know, potential impact in the world that it can. Right. Well, it's quite interesting because I was also interested in the other side of the coin, I guess, which is the actual in, uh, availability of capital, uh, increase in availability of capital for projects that might not otherwise get money, get funded. Um, and you do hear sometimes people talk about the kinds of projects that um, I, I've spoken to people who say, well, more and more social entrepreneurs feel obliged now to follow for profit business models. And quite frankly, with some of the biggest social problems and certainly ones that are scalable, it's just not possible. You've had a great question that, that can be a conundrum is um, to what type of business model do you create as a social entrepreneur, for profit or nonprofit? Um, and I, there are great examples both ways. I, I've been honored for the last six years. I chair the board of Fair Trade USA, which is the certifier of fair trade goods in the U.S. So everything from um, you know, mangoes and coffee and tea to uh, outerwear produced by Patagonia. Um, and, and fair trade is about a $20 million a year nonprofit social enterprise. So run very much like a business, but completely, you know, run as a nonprofit by a nonprofit board. So that's one example. And then there are a number of other examples. Uh, Change.org, for example, is a very successful for-profit organization with the mission that's now had, I think, two or three equity rounds at this point. Um, so it's a challenge that a lot of social entrepreneurs are trying to get their arms around. And what's funny is that there, it always seems to be the grass greener on the other side. So amongst our fellows, for example, we'll have folks that are nonprofits saying, geez, I shouldn't have gone nonprofit because it's so much easier to raise investment capital if I were a for-profit. And for every one of those, there's the for-profit saying, I shouldn't have gone for-profit because it's hard to raise investment capital but now I'm having to give up this opportunity to get philanthropic grants that I would have as a nonprofit. And so I think the answer is it's hard in both cases. Um, and there is no one size fits all, but I really believe that part of the answer is how capital intensive and how much capital do you need? Because there is a, there is very much of a limit to the amount of growth capital that a nonprofit social enterprise is able to generate. Uh, we bucked that trend at Fair Trade. We raised a $25 million capital campaign beginning about three years ago, not to build anything or put anybody's name on a building, but actually as what otherwise would have been like Series C growth capital had we been a for-profit. And we've been successful in raising about 18 million of that 25. Um, but I think that what gave us the right to do that is we earned it by the size of the organization and the fact that we had an 18-year track record. So it, it's much, much harder 
for nonprofit social enterprises to raise growth capital. So that's the challenge is that, you know, not, there's some nonprofit social enterprises that are trying to solve huge problems and wanting to do it at scale, and yet the philanthropic community just isn't necessarily there to provide the level of capital they need. So an option for them is to go for profit. And, you know, there, there's some in the space that say, well, you're giving, you know, you're, you're kind of selling out your values, et cetera. I don't believe that's the case. I think that there are some wonderful examples of companies that have gone for profit that have set aside significant stakes for stakeholders. Uh, companies, for example, based in the developing world where, you know, the actual producers on the ground own a meaningful piece of the business. So there's various ways to do it, and one size doesn't fit all. But uh, I would actually say that, that the business model conundrum of nonprofit versus for-profit is probably amongst the top three or four issues today that if you bring them together in a group and close the door and send the media away and actually ask social entrepreneurs, what are you really struggling with today? That's one of the things they'll tell you. Fascinating, very interesting. I spoke to Kevin Starr Malago, who has a particular focus, I guess, really for the very poorest communities. And he talked about the, 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 the well, I mean, obviously there's the growing uh, hybrids, number of hybrids, but the idea of maybe being a, setting out as a non-profit and in some cases then spinning out or setting up within that a for-profit. Um, but it's clearly a, a, a big challenge and a big, big question really and something that one could talk um, for more than uh, a few days on trying to get, you know, as you say, some nuance into these questions of what kinds of funding are appropriate for different kinds of social business and different stage of growth and so forth. Mindful of the time, Ron, I'm just wondering, just going back to the foundation for a moment, how do you balance impact and returns in your grant making and investment? Well, I would, um, so it's a great question. I, I guess I would say that on the grant making side, we're very focused in our grant making, recognizing that impact measurement is still, still more art than science. Uh, we decided the best way that we can properly evaluate and assess impact is both from the grant and the investment side, is to kind of constrict our market to things, both geographies and issue areas that we know really well. So on the grant side, we're making a lot of grants today to artisan-type organizations that support that ecosystem. We're making grants to social entrepreneurship accelerators and organizations. We know them very well. We understand the market. We've got a, an enormous number of touch points around them to evaluate. So, um, you know, that's, that's one, I think that's the way on the grant side that we're trying to make sure that we're as close to these organizations as we can be to evaluate impact. And on the investment side, you know, people ask us often, are you impact first or financial first? And, you know, I started to try to answer that question before, but then I thought about it from my traditional investment world, and it would be like someone asking a traditional investor, someone asking Warren Buffett, well, are you most concerned about reward or risk? And of course, they're going to say both, right? Because it's a combination of the two, and you can't look at one without the other. If you're focused entirely on return, 
and not risk, or on risk and not return, you're missing half the equation. So I feel the same way on the impact side. I would say we're neither impact nor financial focused. We're truly both. And we're looking at investments that give us the best opportunity to combine what I would say is a reasonable risk-adjusted market return with the ability to create as much impact as we can create. And um, you know that we have a pretty wide funnel in our deal flow. We see lots and lots of different things from funds to individual investments. And um, you know we don't tend to pull the trigger often. We'll look at 50 deals for every one that we select. And um, you know we're not unlike a lot of other investors in doing that. Now when we do select something. Our website is public with what we've invested in, and we actually have begun to develop through some networks that we're in a group of co-investors that in many cases have invested along with us. We'll share our investment memos, our due diligence, um, so that you know we can all become smarter at what we're doing. Great, great, very inspiring, Ron. What inspires you to keep going, Ron? Well, I think, uh, you know, when I, when I sold my business in my late 40s, I kind of made the decision that I wanted to transition into a, a second act, if you will. And so I'm about 10 plus years into that now. And uh, our, it's, it's become a family. But both my, my wife and I started the foundation and our daughter, who's 27, is very actively engaged as vice chair, um, working on uh, we have a team that includes her and a, a brilliant young portfolio director. So we've got millennial leadership in the foundation. Um, so I, I guess the way I look at this is that uh, there are enormous problems in the world that need to be solved. Uh, we were fortunate enough to have resources available and time and bandwidth available to work on solving them. And we've had the ability to work with some of the most amazing people that we've ever met over the past decade in trying to solve the problems. And um, that led to things like the Opportunity Collaboration and our fellows and lots of other things that we do. So I guess I look at it that I spend my days surrounded by really bright, committed, talented people who are as interested as I am in trying to make a difference in the world. And we have some resources to be able to do it. And um, so we're excited about trying to move that ball forward. Fantastic. Fantastic. And over the next five years, what's your vision? Well, over the next five years, we're going to continue to build out the ecosystems for both social entrepreneurship and impact investing. We're going to continue to speak and write about it, continue to convene people, uh, continue to invest our own portfolio and encourage others to do the same. And I think that this, uh, I certainly think the impact investment industry will become more mainstream. Um, you know, I, I joke when Barron's came out with a big cover story at the end of last year, we were one of four families fortunate enough to be featured. And my joke at the time was it's taken the impact investment industry 10 years to become an overnight success, right? We've gotten a lot more media attention now as an industry than we have previously. A lot of the large financial firms are beginning to build capacity in this area. So it's happening. You know, is it happening as quickly as we'd like it to? No. But big changes and paradigm shifts take time. 
But I would say five years from now, for if we were having this conversation, I would certainly hope that impact investing was much more mainstream. There were many more opportunities for investors, both investors of, you know, kind of foundations and institutions and traditional just retail investors to be able to find ways to combine their passions and portfolios. And we're certainly committed to, to trying to make that happen. Great, great. I, I wish you the very best of success with that, Ron. And thank you so much for taking the time today to share the, your thoughts and experiences and all the great work that you do. Well, thank you for the work you're doing. You, uh, you inspired me when uh, you reached out to me and I looked at the wonderful collection of folks that have preceded me on this podcast, including a great number of good friends and collaborators in the space. So thank you for allowing all these voices to be heard. Thanks, Ron. Thank you for listening to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneur Podcast. I hope you found this interview inspiring. Please make sure to visit www.inspiringsocialentrepreneurs.com and subscribe to make sure you don't miss any future podcasts. SSIR has been serving global leaders of social change for almost 15 years, be it quarterly magazine, online articles, podcasts, videos, webinars, and conferences. At its heart is a vision that collaboration between nonprofit, business, and government sectors is key to solving growing environmental, social, and economic justice issues. Find out more at ssir.org.